it is incredible that this is a king that really admires and respects and is thrilled by people who challenge the system. On the one hand, he's at the top of the system, he's at its pinnacle, and at the other, he's really intrigued by people who have come from nothing and climbed their way up. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. A recent article in The Economist was entitled, The Mystery of Morocco's Missing King. It explores King Mohammed VI's extended and unexplained absences from Morocco over the last five years, as well as the king's close association with three German-born kickboxing brothers of Moroccan origin who've often flaunted their royal connections. Where's the king been? And what does his behavior tell us about the state of Moroccan politics? To help us understand, I speak with the article's author, Nick Pelham. Later, I continue the conversation with my colleagues Natasha Hall and Danny Sharp, and we compare the different ruling strategies of Arab kings. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Nick, welcome to Babel. Jonas, good to be with you. You wrote a very interesting article in 1843 magazine, a magazine associated with the Economist called The Mystery of Morocco's Missing King. Tell me about Mohammed VI of Morocco. What kind of king is he and how does the monarchy in Morocco compare to other countries in the Middle East? What's the king's role been and, and what's Mohammed VI's role been? Morocco likes to say it's one of the oldest kingdoms in the world. It dates back to the 8th century. In the past, the king was known as the sultan or the emir, and the kind of leadership that you have today is part of a legacy that's over a millennium old. And that's kind of quite different to a lot of the kings in the Middle East, who are fairly recent creations. In the case of Bahrain, it's barely 20 years old. Even the Saudis, they didn't become kings until some point in the 20th century. Hashemites have been around for a long time, but again, the title of king is new. And so Morocco likes to think of itself as having a pedigree and a tradition that puts it on the par with kings and queens that are some of the oldest in the world. They would quite happily compare themselves to the British monarchy. And I think that sort of gives them internally a weight that other monarchies probably don't enjoy. And it's certainly kind of rammed through education and through the media that the king and the country are really one and the same. And it's sort of into those shoes that Mohammed VI has stepped. He's been around for over 20 years. And yet there's been something very different about him compared to his father, who very much was a larger than life character. His son has never looked comfortable in those same shoes right from the start. It seemed that he never really wanted the job. He was pushed into it by his father. He had a difficult childhood with his father. And some of that resentment and fear of his father has spilled into resentment and fear of the job that he's been given. I think right from the get-go, he struggled to play the role of king. And I think that's become even more pronounced the longer he's remained on the throne. One of the things that struck me about this king is that I've never met a Moroccan who had a negative thing to say about him. Even Moroccans who I would think might have some reason to be critical, Moroccans who've left the country, they all seem to have both respect and affection for this king. Did you find that as you're reporting the story? Is it something you found different as you've gone through the Middle East and seen the way people talk about their monarchs? 
I did find they're quite protective of him. I think that his kind of failings, his absence is pretty well known. Some of his foibles, his associations are quite well known. They're published in the official press. It is true that there is something about the monarch, the tarnishing the image of the monarch is somehow tarnishing the image of the country itself. And he does represent the country and Moroccans are nationalistic and fiercely proud and don't want to feel that the image of the king is tarnishing their image worldwide. I think that there is quite a lot of truth in that. That said, it's also illegal to say otherwise. And the punishment for questioning the integrity of the king is severe. And you have a very heavy state apparatus that will come down on you very heavily if they hear that you're insulting the king. I think there is a huge difference between the popular image that the king has, which is kind of relayed largely by the state media, and how he is perceived by his own establishment. And there is great concern in the establishment about this pivotal figure, this linchpin of the kingdom who wields immense power without whom the state struggles to function, not being on the job. He's just simply absent for much of the year, sometimes over half the year. And you need to have a king who's in his kingdom in Morocco, and this king isn't. And that makes a lot of Moroccans very worried. And increasingly, I think they articulate that. They articulate that in private. I think you've even seen some instances where that start to trickle into public. There is great concern. Moroccans absolutely want a king. They want a king that they can love, that can do the job. But there is great concern that this king is just not up to the job. So you talked about the foibles and the subtitle of your article is in 2018, a German kickboxer befriended Mohammed VI. The monarch has rarely been seen since. That's quite a foible. The kickboxer's name is Abu Bakr Zaytar. Tell me about him. He doesn't have the normal pedigree that people who befriend kings tend to have. Abu Zaita himself is an incredible character. He was a gangster who grew up in a suburb of Cologne in Germany. He is of Moroccan origin. His father was one of the Gastarbeiters that came from northern Morocco and settled in Germany. He was imprisoned several times for stealing Ferraris, for being involved in protection rackets, or for beating his girlfriend up. He was kind of repeatedly in the courts 17, 18 years ago. He did two spells in prison. He came out and was then diverted his energies and his violence into kickboxing. He became a champion kickboxer, won several titles, and started mixing in a kind of inner world as he acquired fame, which involved hanging out with rappers, pop stars, porn stars. And in 2016, he went back to his parents' homeland. He spent time in Marrakesh. And it is incredible that this is a king that really admires and respects and is thrilled by people who challenge the system. On the one hand, he's at the top of the system, he's at its pinnacle. And at the other, he's really intrigued by people who have come from nothing and climbed their way up. And to him, Abu Zaita and his brothers, who were also kickboxers, typified in some sense a kind of story of rags to riches, of people who'd made it, of people who kind of fought against the system and won. And that's something which I think King Mohammed could identify with. He didn't enjoy embassy functions. He didn't enjoy being fated as a king. He never really appeared at official functions. He didn't go to coronations. He didn't go to funerals. He would fall asleep at international gatherings. And he's somebody who you know would only feel really relaxed when he was in the company of people who had sort of rejected the establishment. And I think in some ways, that's what attracted him most to the Abu Azaitas, and particularly to Abu Azaita, who is this dashing, very well-built, handsome man, and was somebody that, in some sense, addressed all the unease that Mohammed VI had with his own system, which is known as the Mahsin. 
he had seen, I think, in his childhood as oppressive and as controlling and as hierarchical and as representative of all the things he feared restricted him. And in some sense, looked at the Abbasites and saw them as liberating and free and people to be envied. So how does the Mahsin respond to this? How does the establishment that is built up over hundreds of hundreds of years from its association with the monarchy, how does it deal with a monarch who seems to revel in people who struggle against the establishment? Initially, I think they hoped that Muhammad would come to his senses. They thought they would tolerate this. They would advise him that this isn't really what a king should be doing, that his country needed him. They needed him. Without him, decision-making is much more complicated. He has to sign off on every decision at cabinet. He is the commander of the faithful. He is the source of kind of religious and political legitimacy. He is the biggest businessman in the country. The country needs him to function. And they hope that at some point his relationship with the Abu Zaytas would dissipate, but it, it didn't. Instead, kind of Muhammad seems to spend ever more time with them. And so this is Abu Zaytar and then two of his brothers, his twin brother and then another brother, right? Yeah, there are three of them. And he started bringing his extended family into the palace. He started giving them royal functions. The Western Sahara is critical to Morocco's identity and sense of projection into Africa. He started giving them functions of supervising his takeover of the Western Sahara. He would give them access to his royal jet. He would give them cars. And these weren't people who were lying beneath the parapet. They would flaunt their wealth and the royal prerogatives that they acquired on Instagram, on social media. And this just infuriated a system which has a real sense of decorum and a sense of putting the monarchy on a pedestal. And somehow these brothers threatened to knock the king off his pedestal. The Mahsin, this establishment of the royal court around the king, then tried to send messages through the official media about the background of these brothers. They hoped that the king would get the message. There are several salacious articles about the brothers warning that they risk bringing the monarchy into disrepute. And the king just didn't get the message. He gave them ever more power to the point where they really became his gatekeepers. They're the ones who would keep other members of the family away. They would keep the ministers away. Essentially, he was spending all his time in the company of these three brothers, particularly Abu Uzaita. And almost all his advisors and ministers relied on these brothers to get access to the king. And this got to the point where I think it's fair to say it's become a constitutional crisis in Morocco. You told me that you wrote the story and it didn't come out for quite some time. This is a story that I haven't seen reported extensively anywhere. Your article was a complete revelation to me. I try to follow things that are going on in the Middle East. And yet it's a remarkably important story that nobody is talking about. Can you begin to explain that? How long have you been working on this story? And why do you think nobody else has been reporting it? And I have to say, I almost kind of stumbled on the story by chance. I tend to go back to Morocco. I was based there for a couple of years at the time of the king's succession. So I saw the difficulty that I think he had in trying to step into the shoes of his father. He was being held as the king of the poor, and there was a real sense in which he was going to overcome some of the brutality of his father and address some of the human rights abuses. But then I didn't go back for several years until the Arab Spring, with which, as we said, Morocco dealt with quite deftly. It was on a recent trip, I suppose, for maybe about three years ago, that I started hearing concern from officials that their king was absent. They would ask the questions, where is he? What's he doing in Fez? Why is he not coming back here? And it didn't make much sense to me at the time as to what was keeping him away. I knew that he traveled a lot, but this it did seem to be excessive. The heads of state would turn up and Mohammed was nowhere to be seen to receive them. I started hearing from officials about the role that these three brothers were playing in his life. I wasn't sure at the time what to make of them. I was surprised that these were people who were very well plugged in, who had made a career out of being loyal. 
they were sufficiently unsettled they started confiding their concern at the absence of the monarch. And then these articles started appearing in the Moroccan press about the background of the Azaitis. They managed to get a hold of their criminal records from Germany. And astonishingly, a press which is totally subservient to the monarchy started publishing tabloid articles about the background of the king's friends. And when was this? It's probably about two years ago. And yet not really picked up in the Western press at all? A little bit in the Spanish press. Surprisingly, not at all in the French press, for reasons I don't really understand. The Spanish press, so Sombrero particularly, has reported on this, but there was next to no follow-up. And then we started writing about it, and the more we delved into it, the more it seemed that there was to report. And we became quite concerned because, as you said, it hadn't really surfaced in the English-language press, hadn't surfaced in the French-language press. And we worried about what the consequences might be for publication. The editorial process was particularly rigorous. Every line in that article has multiple sources and was checked and rechecked. Were you surprised that some of the people who were willing to talk to you for this? I was surprised at how much of an issue it was for officials that I spoke to. It wasn't something that they would want to shy away from. The country needed a leader and they wanted their leader back. There are increasing questions in Morocco about what happens to the kingdom if the king remains absent. There have been questions about is there a regent who could perform that role? And then there have been tensions in the past between the king and his establishment, particularly his security establishment. There are times where the security establishment has felt very confident that they could do a better job of managing the ship of state. There were these repeated attempts at assassinating Hassan II, Mohammed's father. And so questions are, the more you have this vacuum of power at the top, who might try to fill it? Do you think that this is a situation that is ripe for instability? Or does it feel to you like this is something the system will be able to manage? You do have a strong system in Morocco. There is a bureaucracy. It's probably one of the better managed states in the Middle East. There is a hierarchy. There is a civil service which functions as a civil service should. You have very strong security establishment who do have a grip on the country. And they've been used over many years now. They've become used to a king who spends long periods away, whether it's in West Africa in Gabon on the beach or whether it's in Paris. And they've learned to some extent, how to deal with that. At the same time, you know, this vacuum of power can't go on forever. And as we were saying, Moroccans do have an affection for a king. They want their king to be present. It was very striking when the palace first got wind that this article was about to appear. The king suddenly became very active again in Morocco. It was during Ramadan and he started you know, appearing at iftars and at prayers in a way that Moroccans really hadn't seen for years. They felt that the king was back. And I think that was very reassuring. And there is something about a country which doesn't have oil to prop it up at a time when oil prices are very high, which is exposed to the global economy and to the rise in prices, which does have a population, many of whom live in poverty, and does have a history of very large protests. And there is a concern when you have this vacuum, it does create tensions within the establishment itself between perhaps the crown prince and the king's brother, between different arms of the security establishment. There is concern that if the establishment is too focused on its own affairs, it might have less bandwidth to focus on the affairs of state. Your previous blockbuster cover story in The Economist was on Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, arguably a ruler who is ever-present in the lives of his people. How was the reporting process different on that story and this story, and how were they the same? 
Mohammed bin Salman dominates people's lives in a similar way to a dictator from the 70s and 80s in the Middle East might have done, whether it's sort of Hafez al-Assad in Syria or Saddam Hussein in Iraq. He really is a kind of totalitarian control freak, I think, in his ability to master every aspect of what goes on in the kingdom. He's an ever-present force. And in the process of carving out that power, he's essentially rewritten the social contract of the kingdom. He's made many enemies, and some of those enemies are now outside the kingdom. They've either fled for their lives, or they have people inside the kingdom who are still prepared to talk. I was really struck when I was in Saudi Arabia, just the extent to which people at every level of society were ready to confide just how concerned they were about the direction the country was taking. I found it sort of surprisingly easy to do that research. There were a lot of people who wanted to share their fears about where the country was going and about their personal contacts with Mohammed bin Salman. It was much harder in Morocco, and it took time. At some point, doors started to open. It's often the case you can kind of keep knocking at doors, and they remain closed, and then one opens, and then suddenly they all seem to open. And there was a point where I found that there were an awful lot of people who did want to talk. And there's a lot of material that ended up on the cutting floor. And I do find that comparison between Mohammed bin Salman and the Sikh of Morocco fascinating. We have quite a well-functioning system in Morocco, which has made substantial progress in terms of its infrastructure, in terms of its ability to house its own population. It seems one of the better-run states in the Middle East, and is doing that all without a strong man, without a present leader. And you contrast that with Saudi Arabia, where you've got a kingdom that seems to be racing ahead in multiple directions, spending fabulous sums of money on projects that might end up being wild elephants, and where I think there is a danger that the country just tries to accomplish too much and spins out of control. The checks and balances that exist within a system like Morocco, because there is this royal court which has multiple security agencies which keep the other in check, and where there is a subdivision between the government, the security establishment, between businessmen, and that just doesn't exist in Saudi Arabia. Everything depends on the whim of one man. If that one man makes mistakes, there's nothing really to contain the fallout. If you were to look at a single indicator for Morocco over the next three years, what would it be? I think there is a real constitutional crisis going on in Morocco at the moment. People don't know at what point the king is going to hand over the levers of power. It doesn't seem as if this vacuum can go on forever. So I'd be looking at who is, when the king is not present, who is representing him. And your bet is the king won't reform. The king is on his way to abdication. He was very present for Ramadan, more present than he's probably been in a decade. It does seem as if this message has got through. The brothers who he used to be seen with were nowhere to be seen. It's hard to see how the king is going to sustain that. He just doesn't have that record over 20 years. Over the point in which he then goes off on the leave of absence, who is going to be stepping into his role and serving that function? I think the Moroccan establishment is looking very seriously at their leadership at the moment and trying to find a way in which they can stabilize something which internally feels quite unstable. Nicholas Pelham from The Economist, thanks very much for joining us on Babel. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed that interview and was particularly intrigued by the tale of two kings, if you will, comparing Mohammed VI with Mohammed bin Salman. On the one hand, Morocco is a country that has made substantial progress without having a present leader, while Saudi Arabia is under MBS complete control and is racing forward on all sorts of initiatives. But the jury is still really out on how successful those efforts will be. What 
other interesting contrasts exist between the two and what insights can we derive from them? To start with, Morocco had a lot of momentum, not just from Mohammed VI from when he first came to power, but from his father and from before that, Morocco wasn't trying to reverse its trajectory, it was trying to accelerate it. And in Saudi Arabia, you really do see what is a periodic Saudi effort to really get things on track. And there have been several stages where you've had Saudi leaders who said, you have to really move the system. King Faisal was a real modernizer in the kingdom. His father was a real modernizer forming the kingdom. But Saudi Arabia has these large efforts to really light a fire under things. And then it tends to coast for some period of time. Morocco has been moving. It's developed a tourism industry. It's developed its own industry in manufacturing. There's agriculture more closely tied to Europe. They've developed a closer relationship with the United States. It seems to me that Morocco has been accruing advantages. And as Nick said, Morocco has a pretty competent bureaucracy. Saudi Arabia is in one of its efforts to shake the system from its slumber and really move forward. And MBS has a lot of popular support, especially among young people, to do so. I think the timeline is different, but also the two individuals are quite different and their predecessors are quite different. In the case of Morocco, I think King Hassan II was known to be quite ruthless. So I think that there was a lot of goodwill behind Mohammed VI when he came in. I think a lot of people were excited about him, a youthful new king. He was kind of a modernizer. There was a lot of different reforms that were taking place. And I think that that was really helpful. I think the Arab Spring, frankly, and its failures were also quite helpful in 2011 and onwards until more recently because people were looking to these other countries and they were like, no, we need a leader, we need stability, we have a good thing going, let's move forward. In the past five years, this missing king element has risen and it's been popularized in memes from the Moroccan diaspora. But as John was mentioning, there is this bureaucracy, there is this machsen in place that's very capable of trying to fill that gap. Whether or not we're getting to an inflection point, I'm not so sure. But I think in the case of Saudi Arabia, we're seeing a little bit of the opposite, as Nicholas was mentioning. I think that you had a king prior to MBS that had a more consultative kind of nature. And MBS is just trying to move things forward. He's omnipresent. He really wants to be involved in every single thing that takes place in Saudi Arabia, and less consultative, at least at this point, than perhaps the old order was. But King Abdullah was a reformer. He was a reformer in the Saudi way of being consultative, of distributing power, of not trampling on the prerogatives of the dynasty that ruled the kingdom. What MBS has demonstrated is he is willing to trample and everybody's prerogatives, that the prerogatives had come to cripple and strangle the system because there are too many princes making too much money off the daily conduct of the kingdom. That in itself, of really reshaping power in the kingdom, is not something that Mohammed VI has tried to do. As you point out, the Mahzen, which is sort of the king's men distributed throughout the kingdom, plus a government bureaucracy that functions, 
means that you have institutions throughout the country. Saudi Arabia, in a way, has tried not to develop institutions to be highly personalized. It's a way that the kingdom has secured itself politically, but the economic costs of continuing to secure the kingdom politically became too high. And that begins to explain why Mohammed bin Salman is trying to upend that. He has done it with remarkably little political protest, remarkably few defections, which may not be an indicator of exactly how this all turns out, but certainly suggests that he has insight into how the kingdom works that many of his predecessors didn't have and thought if he tried to do something like what he's doing, you'd surely bring the whole house of cards down. And in fact, he's not done that. And he's been strengthening the kingdom and built a huge amount of popular support along the way. Of course, MBS and King Mohammed operate in totally unique circumstances. Morocco and Saudi Arabia are distinct countries with their own unique ethnic, historical, and cultural contexts. But when you look at these two situations, are there any lessons that either could draw from one another? I think that the differences between Morocco and Saudi Arabia are growing, clearly. But I would also say that Jamal Khashoggi, the late journalist, was quite concerned about the direction of Saudi Arabia. And I'd be interested to hear what John has to say about that, because in large part, it was because of this loss of this consultative apparatus that MBS was moving forward without consulting, even if it was the elites, even if it was a core center of power, that was gone. I'm wondering how that's changing. And that seems to me to be diametrically opposed to what's going on in Morocco, where you essentially have a leader that's missing in action. I would wonder from you, how does that shape Saudi Arabia over the long term? Because I think what we've seen throughout the world, not just in the Middle East, and throughout history is that the more centralized power becomes, the more people around the king or the king-like entity is, the more isolated they are, the more they could just go off the rails. And we've seen this throughout the Middle East and in Africa and elsewhere. And I'm just wondering if MBS or if those around him are learning to build out that of bureaucracy or that consultative status that was at least there prior to MBS. I think being a king is a disorienting experience in the best of circumstances. And the more power you have, the more you're surrounded by people who want to tell you things that you want to hear. The real challenge for MBS is how do you keep a grip on reality? How do you understand what's happening when year after year after year, people currying favor, try to flatter you. This isn't a unique problem with this royal court. I think it's an institutional problem. Arguably, one of the interesting things that's been happening in Morocco, and you can see Nick Pelham's article as a sign of the people around the king trying to send a message to the king, that they can't do it directly, so they'll try indirectly to reform him. But the relationship of any really powerful person to the people who work for that person is always a disorienting relationship. One of the interesting commonalities between the two is in both cases, you have powerful figures who have a problem with institutions and existing power. And how you manage that 
when you have a problem with institutions, but you really need an institution to help you understand what's happening, to correct your, your worst instincts. I think that's a problem that both of them have in the case of MBS, because so much of the kingdom's future hinges on the success of some very dramatic things he's trying to do. I would think that he would need those sorts of corrective institutions even more than the king of Morocco, because so much rests on his discretion. What is really interesting and similar about the two is they both have elicited tremendous enthusiasm and loyalty. I have met Moroccans from all over who just adore the king. I've met Saudis who say the crown prince is doing things we couldn't have imagined in a hundred years. I think to an extent that Americans can't quite understand, there really is a way in which in very different ways, these two royals have elicited a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and pride, despite behaving in ways that we look and say, I don't understand what's admirable here. I don't understand why people would be attracted, whether it's hanging out with MMA fighters with criminal records or some of the excesses of the Saudi crown prince. To me, it means that we have to be a little more humble about how much we understand the way these countries work. There is a way in which people want to feel pride in the leadership. And in very different ways, these two individuals have demonstrated how many paths there are to encouraging real admiration. Granted, there is also genuine fear in both places of crossing the king, crossing the ruler. But at the same time, some of the enthusiasm is real and it doesn't make sense to Americans. Speaking to another monarchy in the kingdom of Jordan, I think it does depend in large degree who the person asking the question is and where they are geographically sometimes in the country. For myself, as a Jordanian, there's aspects of my family that could be linked to the regime. There's aspects of my family that are not, to say the least. And it really depends on if I'm talking to somebody from Mufrag, if I'm talking to somebody from the southern areas like Ma'an, what comes out in terms of their discomfort with the regime, their admiration of the king. It really depends. As time goes on, as these people consolidate their power, you're less and less likely to come across people willing to say some kind of truthful opinion about them. I would say that in terms of monarchies, there is a bit of a different relationship between the people and kings throughout the region as there are then between Saddam Hussein or Bashar al-Assad or his father and the people themselves. And I don't think we quite understand that yet. There's a religious aspect of that, especially for Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Morocco. But I do think there's this element of continuity, which is appreciated in an era of uncertainty otherwise. There's a way in which both MBS and Mohammed VI have played into traditional symbols, traditional rituals to get that support. And King Abdullah of Jordan has been impatient with those rituals. He hasn't wanted to go and spend time with tribal leaders. There's a way in which it feels like he wants to be a more modern king, but the loyalty that the subjects have both in Saudi Arabia and Morocco 
in my experience talking across the region, I do think there's diversity in Jordan. There are certainly people who are much more outspoken about the king in Jordan than there are in either Morocco or Saudi Arabia. I don't think you can say it's all because of fear. There's a certain enthusiasm that people feel toward both Muhammad's that they don't feel toward Abdullah. How much of that is because people feel the leadership isn't as good? How much of it is because King Abdullah doesn't want to do all of the ritualistic things or isn't as good at doing the ritualistic things? That I don't know, but it does feel to me like there is something unusual in Morocco about the way people feel toward the king, partly because of his father and a sense that he's really different. And I think a lot of this enthusiasm for MBS in Saudi Arabia is genuine among young people who say this man is changing our future. And for that, we owe him our loyalty. I think that's real. I think you see it toward the leadership in the UAE. I think you see it in a lot of places. You don't necessarily see it in places like Kuwait, but there's something about some of these royals who are able to generate not only loyalty, but affection, admiration, reverence in a way that is an important part of the ruling formula. John and Natasha, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. 